Thank you very, very much. I want to talk to everyone today about what the last couple of years of my life have been like because they've been dramatically different than the years before that. So I've been a stay-at-home dad for almost seven years. So seven years ago, I was managing a computer shop. Uh, I was about to go on paternity leave. My boss came to me and was like, hey, great news. Apple's coming to Halifax and we're closing our store permanently. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Uh, So I went home and we decided I would take a year off and take care of my son. And then I realized I didn't want to ever go back to work for anyone else. And so I spent the next seven years trying to build what it is I do now. And for a long time, that was slightly difficult. How many of you do your the business that you like outside of your normal business? How many of you have a side business that is kind of what you're doing, but you have a job of some sort that pays the bills? Okay. How many of you have kids? So there's not a lot of you in the room who actually get the time to focus full time on the thing you want to do. Not that you don't want to hang out with your kids. I like my kids. It was offered to me that they could come here and enjoy this lovely hotel with me. And I was like, (laughs) no, Um, but I do really like them. So first off, uh, I want to introduce myself. Uh, Most of everything that Ali said is most of the things you probably need to know. I do run a small digital agency in Halifax called One Red Cat Media. We do web development, social media, content. Um, The last couple years, I have focused much more on uh, consulting. So I've basically helped people do what it is that they want to do. And that's sort of where this whole thing stemmed from. So let's start with deep work. So a couple years ago, I realized that I had always been passionate about reading, and then I just stopped reading books that didn't rhyme or have rabbits in them. Uh, I basically no longer read any books that were for me. And if I did, I very quickly went unconscious. It was like a couple pages in, and then I was like, look, I'm exhausted. But I realized that I had loved reading uh, for so long, and I needed to sort of up my professional game a little bit. So I decided I would start reading a lot more personal productivity books. The largest, most annoying shelf at chapters, which is like, here's 17 keys to living your best life and blah, blah, blah. And I read a lot of them. And a lot of them I really didn't like because for a lot of them, I really thought that's not applicable in any way. Like I can't, you know, I read, how many of you have read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss? How many of you have hired a virtual assistant since reading that book and only worked four hours a week? Not really a common thing. There's lots of takeaways from a lot of these books, but I didn't find anything that I was able to bring sort of everything to. Uh, you know, I hear Gary Vaynerchuk talk about how important it is to do all this content, but he runs a $400 million company. He gets to drive in the back of a car and make sneakers that say clouds and dirt and sell hundreds of thousands of them. And he just gets to do that because he has the resources to be able to do that. And most of us don't. Book after book, some of them that I really, really liked, some of them that I really, really hated. And then I found this book, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Cal Newport wrote um, a bunch of really kind of silly books, like How to Get Straight A's in College. He was kind of known as this guy who had written these books about productivity, but they all seemed kind of bland. And when I saw this, I kind of thought, all right, I'm in Ottawa for a few days. I'm on vacation. I'll check out this book. 
And it absolutely fundamentally changed the way that I work. Because one of the things that he suggests is that a lot of the work we do is very, very surface work. And for those of that are, uh, for those of us that are in social media, especially, I know that you really feel like a lot of your work is just very surface on the top level. You're like, okay, I have to put out a piece of content that has a link so that they'll do this thing. And it, it feels very automatic in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel like you're really digging into anything that's that important to you. Um, and you can, but most of us don't have the time or energy because we have how many different clients that all need us to produce content for all these different things. And it becomes very difficult to do really, really great work. What Cal Newport suggests is you have to. Like, you absolutely have to do great work. And then he goes on to give you all these examples. And he says, well, here's some people in history who've done great work. He says things like, Freud used to have a tower that he used to go to, and he would just sit in this tower for eight hours thinking about psychology. He's like, that is probably not something you're going to be able to do. Most of us don't aren't able to just be like, oh, every weekend I'm going to take a retreat. You know, some of the things that I heard about this weekend, like the Creative Soul Retreat, that'd be really cool if you could do that, like, every weekend for the rest of your life, but you probably can't. It'd be awesome, but you probably can't. So what we're left with is this idea of, well, okay, I can't be, he, he calls that the hermit or the monk. Most of us don't have the ability to be a hermit or a monk. We're at our job during the day or whatever. So he goes through all these different types of people and he kind of gets to the final of the person where he's like, hey, let's imagine you had any other responsibilities whatsoever. And you're like, OK, that's me. And then he kind of explains that we still have to back away from these surface things and dig into something in more detail. He has some advice, which I have not followed because it's terrifying because for most of us, like I tell my wife all the time, oh, this is a friend of mine. Like I'll be talking about someone, my friend. And she'll say, are they like a real friend or do you know them on Twitter? And I'm always like, if I'm counting real friends, I have like six. And honestly, most of them I only talk to on Twitter anymore anyways. So social media for a lot of us is the way that we actually connect with most of our community. We live in different places. We do different things. I have, I have recently sent a direct message to people that are in a room with me. I know that's not ideal, but given scenarios, you're like, oh, I have to message Jennifer. I'll just, she's right there, but like, I'm right here. And I'll just, I don't want to yell like, Jennifer, do you know the thing? So uh, we, we have this situation. So one of the things he suggests from a social media standpoint is that you actually walk away for a period of time. He recommends 30 days that you just leave a platform and just ghost it. You don't say anything at all. Most importantly, you don't say, hey, guys, I'm going for a little while. Make sure you comment about how much you miss me and my content while I'm gone. Instead, you just ghost it and leave. I have not done this because it's terrifying to me to imagine how few people will message me and say, hey, where are you? Uh, and then I, when I come back, I'll be like, I only have three friends. Um, but I do try and do this as much as possible. One of the things that I've realized over time is that those people that we say, hey, we should go for coffee sometime, and you haven't seen them since they had different hair, a different husband, and a different number of kids, 
you're not going to go get coffee with them anytime soon. And I say this to people all the time. Like one of my groomsmen uh, is this guy, Neil. Uh, we talked about him. He's the one who kept getting us pulled over at the border because he's kind of a jerk. Uh, but Neil and I knew each other very well. We lived together for a couple of years. He was in my wedding. We don't hang out anymore. And every time we message, we always say, like, we should go grab dinner. And you're like, yep. But we both have two kids and we both do things and we just don't take that time. And both of us kind of know, like, we really like each other, but there's other people that we spend our time with. And so what I've tried to do on social media as much as possible is say, maybe I should stop posting surface posts to social media. Maybe I should start saying things that are important to me on social media or chiming in when I have something to say. I try my best not to pull the classic dude like, well, actually, this is the thing. Um, I try to not chime in on conversations that I probably don't need to chime in on because I'm not the subject matter expert. I tend to do more of saying things on social media like, thank you for sharing that, or I appreciate that you've shared that, instead of me saying, I noticed that I can now hash... <laughs> hijack a hashtag and tell my story and try and get you to go to my website and do all these different things. You know, the people who end the threads with like, I have a SoundCloud account. I'm always like, I'm never going to go to your SoundCloud account. I don't, I don't care at all. So this book kind of changed the way I did things, which is I started to say, all right, I'm not focused most of the time. I'm, I'm doing, I'm getting a lot of things done, but I'm not actually doing anything that I'm significantly proud of. And I couldn't understand, one of the things I couldn't understand is why each of us had these sort of different things that made us happy in certain ways. Like, I know we're all different people, but I was like, I don't understand why there's such different interactions. Like, why I could say something to Joe, and Joe would be like, that's great. And I could say the same thing to Kara, and she would say, that's terrible. And so, you, you, I mean, you do have to know people in a certain way, but there were these kind of concepts that I had struggles with. And then along came someone uh, from me named Gretchen Rubin. Have any of you ever, do you follow Gretchen or do you read her stuff? All right. Don't spoil anything if you know a lot about the four tendencies, but we're going to do a really quick little thing about the four tendencies. So I have been, just to give you a little bit more background, I have an education degree. I worked in adult education and training for quite a while. So I've done all of the different quizzes of like, are you an introvert who likes parties? Are you an extrovert who likes to sit in a car? Like I've done all the things where you're like, here's all the different things that make up who you are as a human. Here's the Care Bear that both represents you as whatever you are. I really like the Care Bears, by the way. Uh, I've used them as a whole analogy for a training class one time. Uh, but Gretchen Rubin is one of my favorite people. She wrote this book called The Happiness Project. And with the happiness project, she was basically writing this book. It was like, Hey, do you want to be happy? This is actually how you do it. And it's one of the first books you were like, Oh, that actually is how you be happy. Like those are great things. But something really bugged Gretchen in that she, people weren't doing the things that the book said. She was like, you, you these work. There's all these stories for obviously from everyone that this works. Why wouldn't you just go ahead and do these things? It makes perfect sense. So let me tell you about a parking space. I'll be louder because I'm going to be down here for a second. So my favorite coffee shop in Halifax is a place called Local Joe's on Oxford Street. I work out of there probably three times a week. They have a little corner I can put my kids in and they can play. And I, I've actually met clients while reading a storybook to my kids on my lap while I work. I love it there and they're wonderful. Outside, 
they have a parking space. So this is the curb cut. So there's a driveway right here and there's a driveway right here. This space is long enough to fit one car. This is actually an ideal space for this. I was kind of wondering how I was going to explain it, but this works perfectly. There's space to fit one car right here. And right here on the podium, there is a sign. And the sign says you can park on that side of the sign, but you cannot park on this side of the sign. Once again, there is space for one car right here. And there is a sign that says absolutely you may park here. You may not park here. And this spot remains generally empty because generally people don't know what the hell to do with that spot. So I'm going to give you four scenarios of what you could do in relation to that parking spot. And then I'm going to tell you what that means about you as a person. So how many of you, show of hands and remember which one you are, how many of you would say, it says I can't park there, so I can't park there. How many of you would say, I'm not going to park there. There's a sign that says no parking on that side. I'm not going to park there. You can. You can change your mind once you've heard them all. But I don't want to overload you because there are a few. So if you decide that sounds more like me as you go on, you can absolutely change your answer. That's the first option. How many of you would say, well, it depends why I'm parking there. Am I meeting someone? Am I late to meet someone? Do I need to grab something so that I can go do something else? How many of you would park there depending on what you needed to do? A few people. How many of you would sit there for a while going, well, I mean, it says parking and I could park there. And even if it doesn't, if it says no parking there, obviously there's a reason they would have the sign. There would be no reason to have a sign that said you can't park. How many of you would sort of think about it in a lot of detail and then maybe decide to park or maybe decide not to park, depending on what you sort of thought about as the question. There's a few people in there. You guys are my favorite. And I'm sorry for saying, guys, you people are my favorite. And I'm going to explain as we go on why you're my favorite, because mostly it's because you're really interesting and I like to think about you. Now, the last person is the person who says, the last person is the person who says, I do what I want. I'm going to park there. If I feel like parking there, or I'm not going to park there if I don't feel like parking there, your sign is stupid. I don't care. Okay. So the first group of people, you are called upholders. You like rules. You like to follow rules. And generally, all you need in order to decide that you're going to do something is an external force that says, this is what you are supposed to do. My wife is an upholder. She has never parked in that spot. She will never park in that spot. She won't let me park in that spot. There's no parking there. That's an upholder. The second person who would say, well, it depends on who I'm meeting and what I'm doing. That's an obliger. An obliger is not interested in an external series of rules. An obliger is interested in what other people need from them. If I'm running late and I'm meeting someone, I will park in the middle of the road. I, I have to. I can't stand being late. I can't stand letting someone else down. I put four ways. It just brings attention to myself. Um, so I'm going to hop back up here for a minute so you can hear a little better. 
But an obliger is very much focused on other people for what they need to do. And that is me. I'm someone who is very, very much focused on how everyone else is going to react, how they're going to feel, how I can make their day better by doing that. Obligers tend to marry upholders because the upholder is like, I need this to happen. And I say, yes, dear. Uh, and that's sort of how obliger upholder relationships tend to happen. The third people. The third people who would question and wonder whether or not they could are unsurprisingly called questioners. Questioners can decide to do something or not to do something, but they have to weigh all of the pros and all of the cons, and they have to figure out why they would do that. With each of these, we're going to talk about... So, I'll back up a second. None of these are bad things to be. I want to be very clear about that. I know people in all of these categories that are extraordinary people. I know people in all of these categories that are terrible people. These are all just, there are things that it's nice to know them, and I'll explain why after. Questioners will decide based on the information presented to them. Questioners make decisions. They ask a lot of questions. They get all the data, and then they decide whether or not they're going to do something. The last group are rebels. Rebels are not tied into what someone else thinks should happen or what the rule is or even the why. Rebels are actually entirely focused on their own identity and who they think they are. So rebels can get very interesting because if I believe I am someone who is nice and conscious of other people's feelings and I want to make the world a better place by being a good citizen, I won't park there. But if I, as a rebel, believe my time is valuable, I'm an important person, the person waiting for me needs me to be there so that I can help them get through their day, a rebel might park there. Rebels are very much into their identity. How many of you have a friend who, whenever you, if you see them every few years, they're on some new big kick. They're like, I'm a surfer. You're like, you weren't a surfer before. And they're like, I'm a surfer now. That's all my clothes are surfer clothes. It's all I do. And then the next time you see them, you're like, I'm they're like, I'm really into meditation. You're like, do you do that surfing? They're like, I'm not a surfer. I meditate. I'm focused. I got all my yang in the right places. Uh, rebels have a tendency to do that. They grab something and they pull that very close to their heart. And that's who they are as a person. So why am I telling you all these things? Well, at the beginning of this, I said a map for all seasons. That's what it's actually called. One of the things that has frustrated me as I've tried to help people achieve their goals and as I've read what other people have written about this is this, is this same thing that I hear over and over again. This guide will take you from this exact place where you are and it will take you to this exact place where you need to be, except it doesn't take into account where you are, or where as a human you need to be. I've read so many guides that tell you, like, you just need to do all these things. And you're like, cool, that'd be great for an upholder. That's a really great guide for an upholder. But as a questioner, I need to know more. My, and I'm not a questioner, by the way. Uh, my wife is a naturopathic doctor. I learned about the four tendencies from her because she actually uses it in her practice now. Not so much for her. Because she's an upholder, she knows that. But it's just as important to think about what other people are, 
when you're thinking about how you're developing relationships and how you're working with them. So let's say that Lori goes to see my wife and what were you again? Can you tell me the questioner? So Lori goes to see my wife for, she wants to be taller. I don't know. There's no, so Lori goes to see my wife and my wife will actually often now ask a lot of questions that will kind of get her thinking about what that person is from one of these tendencies. And once she figures out that Lori's a questioner, she knows that she can't tell Lori, these are the things you need to do to feel better because Lori will say, well, I have a lot of questions and I'm not just going to do something just because you give me a list of things to do. So instead she'll say, I want to give you a whole bunch of information and she'll give you all the information about each of these things so that you know, like, okay, this has answered all the questions for it. Now I can go ahead with it. An obliger, she might say things like, your partner will notice a difference in your energy levels once you begin doing this process because it all has to relate to someone else's relationship with them. As an upholder, she just tells them, like, this is what you need to take. Thanks for coming out. And upholders just go, doctor says this, I take this. Like the traditional, like, take two of these and, two of these and call me in the morning. Only an upholder is ever going to do that. Rebels require choice. My daughter, who is four, you can't typically, uh, I'll say diagnose a person's tendency when they're young because they have a tendency to be going through all these crazy changes that are a lot of hormones. Uh, my daughter is four. So there's this part of like, well, maybe she's not that person, but my daughter is a rebel hands down lights out. My daughter, if you told her you have to do this, she is like, I will never do that. <laughs> so with my daughter, you have to give her choices. And they don't have to be good choices. I can literally say to my daughter, you can either put on your pants and we can go to gymnastics or you can cry and I will throw away all your toys. The really interesting about, thing about that is my daughter will then sit there and go, all right, I'm going to decide which of these things is going to happen. And usually a rebel will make the good choice if you've given them the right combination of choices, but they have to make that choice. So one of the things that I started to do, both in realizing what I needed, but also realizing what particular clients needed, was I started to think more and more about what that person was and what that person might be thinking. So I have a client I'm working with right now who are clearly a questioner. Every social media calendar that I send them has like, did you notice that this word, you chose this, we could use this word, things that for me are not important. And honestly, for most people wouldn't be, but for her, they are the end all be all of that thing because she's a questioner. Uh, I have clients who are upholders and I tell them, this is what you need to do. And I get a return email with all of those things laid out. I really think that if you can wrap your head around what you are from a four tendencies perspective, and if you can start to think about the people you're interacting with this way, it can have a tremendous impact on what you're able to do. Because sometimes we think we're working so hard, like I'm working so hard to give Brittany what Brittany wants, but I'm more thinking about what I would want. And when I start to think about Brittany in this light and I go, oh, Brittany needs these things. Well, I can deliver those things pretty easily to her. And then we're done and we're good. My wife's favorite game now when we meet people, when we watch TV shows, like we watch Scandal and my wife's like, what do you think Olivia Pope is? 
Uh, or like we meet someone and she's like, do you think they're a rebel? Um, before I move on to the next part, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple quick problems and things to watch out for if you are one of these tendencies, because there are certain traps that you can very easily fall into under each of them. Upholders have a tendency to go through something called upholder tightening. Upholder tightening involves you looking at the rules and going, I have to follow those rules. It doesn't matter if they ruin every single other thing around me. Upholder tightening, uh, upholders, for example, if you were to go on a diet as an upholder, the problem is not typically that you'll go off that diet. It is that you will take that diet way too far. Um, and you will make choices that make you dramatically unhappy because they fall into that list of things that are on that diet that you're supposed to do. And that's upholder tightening. I'll do mine last because when it happens, it's going to be hilarious. Rebels, there's no specific thing that rebels do that's really out there. It's just that you don't really know what they're going to do. Rebels are often very successful in sales uh, because they have the ability to just like dive into whatever they're working on. You guys are kind of laughing and nodding a little bit. It's, it's fun. Uh, and rebels are great. Rebels can, once, once rebels have decided I'm going to do something, they are the most focused individuals on getting that done and they do accomplish it. What tends to happen with rebels is then when that's done, they kind of go, that's done. What do I, is there something, what do I do now? Because I still have all this energy. Questioners uh, go through something called, um, it's like a circle of questioning. So basically you're like, should I do that? Should I do that? Should I do that? And you end up just asking yourself the question so much that you never actually make the decision. And in the end, the deadline passes, whatever happens, happens, and you're basically done. Question paralysis, the way to actually solve it is by giving yourself deadlines, is to basically say, okay, I can ask all the questions in the world, but I have five minutes. Or I can ask all the questions in the world, but I have two weeks. At the end of the two weeks, I have to decide what I'm going to do. End of story. And I and questioners will go along with that. It's just if you don't give a questioner a deadline, they will always just continue to think about what they should or shouldn't do. Then there's obligers. Obligers spend most of their time in service to others. In a lot of cases, that's especially true in relationships. Obligers have a tendency to be very subservient and very much just go along with whatever you say. My wife knows that if I happen to say I don't like something, it probably means I hate it more than anything in the world because the rest of the time I just go, I don't care. My wife sent me a long message yesterday because we recently transitioned to a one-car family from two, which sucks. Um, but she sent this huge long text of like, here's this big plan. And at the end of it, I responded with, okay. Like, you just tell me what I need to do and where I need to show up at. Obligers, if this happens long enough, then they don't feel respected and supported and all these things go through something called obliger rebellion. Obliger rebellion is when you basically go, nope, uh, and you're done. Uh, this has a tendency to happen primarily in relationships. Primarily when you, when you see people who break apart and are suddenly very happy after 35 years of marriage and suddenly one of them is like, I am happier now than I've ever been. It's because they've spent all of their time trying to work on pleasing someone else. And suddenly they were like, I don't have time for that anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, 
my wife will all the time be like, I just want you to know that I like you and you're great. You're doing a good job. And I appreciate you because she doesn't want to take care of her kids. Uh, and so uh, when you start to think about these things, when you start to understand them a little bit, you can dig into how your relationships with other people work. <laughs>